monochromatic background figure, right? And that's the style. Maybe one day we'll be called the Ghanaian school or something to the, the story of figuration up into about now. And I feel like we're having that pull back towards abstraction where it's like, it's a figure, but it's abstracted. You know, and probably a younger name such as Joe Messer will probably start folding into that too. Um, and that's kind of all under the umbrella of these more established mid-career artists who somewhere in the Biennale this year, others are having big museum shows, but we seem poised for the abstracted figure to be, you know, the, the art du jour to a certain extent of, of at least the first part of this year. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Welcome to another edition of the Artelligence Podcast. This is our annual hot list edition. Last year, we ran through the numbers in our database, looked at the artists who were bid up the most above the estimates, and came up with a list of about 25 individual artists and told you the story behind each of their markets. This year, I thought we'd do something a little different. There are so many artists who are seeing aggressive dynamic bidding that I thought we'd look for trends. So I'm joined today by George O'Dell, Executive Vice President for Sales at Live Art and an expert on all of these micro markets to talk a little bit about what happened last year. More importantly, which of those trends are going to continue into 2023 as the market resumes in January and February. George, I thought we could talk a little bit about some of the individual artists that you've been following that you think our market tells for this coming year. Of course, I'm happy to be here in early January. You know, there's there's lots to talk about in, in this episode of, of the, our podcast and, and it's exciting to look at the year ahead. I think a lot of what we're gonna see Going forward is a continuation of what we saw towards, you know, the second half of last year. You have some revivals and rediscoveries. You've got some historical artists regaining some ground or making new markets like Pierre Soulage. I think you're going to start seeing more and more in the U.S. as we talked about with Laura Paulson a bit in the last podcast. You know, Lucio Fontana seems to have passed the sniff test into the next generation. Stanley Whitney, I think we're going to start seeing those. If, if date defined starts to move the dial, you know, if a 90s one is really more important than a more recent one or if it's all about the colors. Neo Geo, like Peter Halley, that seems to be a bubbling along for a long time and maybe we're due for another market breakout um, in, in the more recent work. Eve Klein seems to be having a return to form alongside Ad Reinhardt, who you know was a voice on our lips a number of years ago when the estate moved from Pace to Zwerner, but you know has kind of drifted into the background. I feel like as part of the greater ABEX discussion with large, you know, Reinhardt's not a name we've heard about. And I feel like 
we're going to come back into that, especially as abstraction and then, you know, the all too telling monochrome probably makes its way into late 2023, late early 2024. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I also didn't talk about the explosion of female artists in the last year, both historical and um, new discovery as in, in mid-career. You know, Cecily Brown's got a big show coming up at the Met. Let's see if that pushes against those six five six point five million dollar auction highs. Drexler, you know, there's lots to talk about there. Christina Quarles, we we you know wax poetic about last year, and I don't think we're done there. Jade Fadu de Timmy, you know, I think there's an, a story to tell in America outside of the auction world. Flora Yukinovich, you know that that was such a breakout. That's that's going to be a hard one to call. Um, Lauren Quinn, Lucy Bull, and uh, you know Atel Adnan, who post Guggenheim seems to all of a sudden have this very robust private market, even if there isn't much of an auction market. Mary Heilman, I think we talked about more or saw more of in 2022 than we have in you know the five years prior, and I think that's the name that could start getting more and more in there. Um, and then also, you know, the, the emergence of someone like Hotel from, from South Korea and showing the kind of power on the ground of the next generation of Korean artists, call it post Don Sequa, you know, Asian abstraction. Um, so there's, there's lots and lots and lots to dig into. It's an exciting time. You know, Art Singapore has just kicked off. And you know, as the first fair, we've got Freeze LA on the horizon, mid-season auctions. There's all sorts of stuff in the first quarter to get excited about. So let's let's break this down a little because you know we've been talking in the market for a, you know some time now that there's a, almost this um, uh, tidal pull between abstraction and figuration, and for the last I don't know six or eight years, figuration has been in ascendancy for a, a variety of reasons, not just art historically, but some of the artists uh, uh, and their work. Uh, though, you know, the most prominent have been African diaspora artists who work uh, in figuration and many people who are sort of deep in African art will t tell you African abstraction is the larger uh, component of what comes out of uh, uh, contemporary art in Africa uh, than figuration. So I, I think what you're suggesting, and I'm asking this more because I'm happy to be corrected, is that, that there is this pull and there's always going to be a little bit of both, but we're kind of seeing things swing back towards uh, interest in abstraction sort of in all its forms, still getting representation through through women, expanding uh, a geographical uh, interest, and maybe even reviving some lesser sort of you know, canonical Abex uh, painters. And it was interesting that you mentioned Ad Reinhardt, who was once a huge name and then kind of got eclipsed uh, in the last uh, 30 years. And I've never known whether it was a, a supply issue that there's just not a lot of work out there or just, you know, the darkness of the works and it makes it hard. Purple on black is not exactly <laughs> an easy thing to. Yeah, I think Reinhardt's right up there in the kind of drink the abex kool-aid part of part of the story you know it's very very obviously very very important to all of abex but at the same time you've got to jump through a number of other very colorful things to get there you know to the absence of uh, absence of color you know i think that i think it's interesting i think we saw kind of in the out, outbreak of you know on the scene of these a lot of these western african artists and as you said african diaspora artists you know the, the sort of apex of that being 
monochromatic background figure, right? And that's the style. Maybe one day we'll be called the Ghanaian school or something to this effect. But like you've got Amy Sherald in Chicago also painting in this format. And then you've got, you know, you can track it all the way back to Alex Katz of a certain decade, right? So, you know, the monochrome with figure is kind of like the story of figuration up into about now. And I feel like, you know, we've had people like Cecily Brown and kind of that school of ab abstraction ticking along on the side. Amy Silman, Jacqueline Humphreys, things like that. But I feel like we're having that pull back towards abstraction. And we saw it with the emergence of Ileana Savdi or somebody like Emma Webster in the younger markets, right? Where it's like, it's a figure, but it's abstracted. You know, and probably a younger name such as Joe Messer will probably start folding into that too. Um, and that's kind of all under the umbrella of these more established mid-career artists who somewhere in the Biennale this year, others are having big museum shows. These were all, also artists who, you know, had big market breakout moments a few years ago and then kind of, you know, ticked along just fine. Private markets are probably healthier than auction markets in some instances. Um, but we seem poised for, you know, abstraction, the abstracted figure to be, you know, the, the art du jour to a certain extent of, of at least the first part of this year. And then we'll probably get back to a kind of balance of, you know, the figure, the figuration camp is in the figuration camp and the, um, abstract campus in the abstract camp and that will move geopolitically around is, is it latin american that comes next or is it you know what happens next in that form i don't know and we saw sort of pivotal or hinge artists like um shara hughes and uh, Huang Yuxing uh, do incredibly well last year. And uh, while not wanting to take anything away from them individually as artists, it, it seems like they kind of fit nicely as sort of they're, they're representational, but they're also brightly colorful and, uh, and have lots of elements of abstraction with them. Uh, so that sort of opens the door for that phase. Yeah, it's, it's kind, of, kind of like your lead into pure abstraction and get a little, little figure in there. No, and I think we need to make the assumption now that a strong component of all market and collecting is going to be representation, meaning broader geographical representation. One, we've got a lot more Asian collectors in the, uh, the market, and they've been remarkably interested in African diaspora work, you know, er Ernie Barnes, I mean, a, 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 a lot of European, but they, one presumes they are also interested in contemporary Asian artists, and we're seeing a huge crop of those, you know, do well. Yeah, and I think we're also seeing a shift in terms of when different parts of the geographic art collecting landscape jump into these markets. You know, I thought it was very interesting to take Lynn Drexler sort of on her market debut straight out to Asia, and all of a sudden it's in Asia, you know, moments after it had just made its kind of big splash in New York, and then to have it come back in this really stellar show at Mnuchin, you know, I think there's there's something to be said that we're seeing more, kind of more and more it was the West than to the East, and then kind of globally. Now I feel like the East is coming in just as fast as the West, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a fight for, right from the start for discovery both new and old or old and new. Yeah, I, it seems like the secret isn't so much where it happens, but that it happened in a kind of pronounced way, which draws people from the antipode back. back. So so Javier Calleja uh, brings in Europeans by doing well in Hong Kong or cause or, you know, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, it is it, it, it the, the the art market, though, at least the um, 
auction market and the way it sends signals has now become bipolar between Hong Kong and, and New York. And it's it's really about what kind of attention you can create and will you get enough of a an echo across the rest of the uh, uh, collecting community. Yeah, and, and that will be interesting in terms of auction participation too with Asia opening up. Will, you know, will Asian dollars stay home to bid or will they be, you know, more prominent in England or will they be more prominent in New York, you know, kind of like traveling, buying, bidding abroad, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that'll that's be an interesting question. Well, in the end of year numbers that were released and the, some of the detail that um, the auction houses went into, the bidding in Asia actually was down, but Asian participation was up. In, uh, specifically in New York, part of that was just the big dollars of the um, uh, the Paul Allen sale, but it, it's just generally that dynamic. So it's kind of uh, fascinating to see. And again, for the private market, this is more about price setting and uh, confidence building for people making uh, individual transactions. I do think it's I think it's interesting too. You mentioned Fontana earlier, and I don't want to skip over that. That I mean. There was a period, I guess it's now 10 years ago, where Fontana had somewhat taken over from um, Warhol as being kind of the dollar standard of the global art market uh, in the, some ways that the the uh, big Richters were also the top driver, somewhat replacing Warhol's um, in, in the previous sort of 2004 to 2011 era uh, uh, and all. And so... You know, and you can understand why it's abstract work. It's easily recognizable. You know, if you know anything about this stuff, you'll you'll know what a Fontana uh, is. It can come down to color and the number of slashes, but there's a lot of work a- out there, and that and that seemed to have run its course. Are, are are you getting the sense that maybe that's sort of coming back a little bit? That there's, as you said, a new generation of people who need their Fontanas. I had a conversation with another dealer um, who kind of was looking at some some of his own data and kind of felt that Fontana was coming back into the fold and probably being picked up and looked at by another generation and kind of unpacking as to why that could be when you think about Fontana in relation to other artists it's like it's so radical the you know monochromatic slash you know oleo a punch the eggs etc that that any copy of it would just be a facsimile object. There's no real true, there's no way to appropriate Fontana, right? In terms of his paintings. Um, and then you've got these great articles about the ceramic show too, which is this whole kind of really underappreciated side of his work when he's kind of coming out of Argentina. And um, so I think, I think you've got these two sides of his market. It's always in the art fairs. As I start to wander away from the, you know, upper deck or the outer side, younger art, you start running into, you know, Carson Grabs booth or Namad or whoever, and they've got, you know, a beautiful white double slash or a little ceramic cruciform or or something that just looks very elegant and also pretty radical and could have been made by somebody today coming out of their MFA. And we would have all thought, wow, that's shockingly amazing. And I think that's the power of Fontana is that it's it can't be undermined or recreated and repackaged into something new. It will always be its own unique standalone thing. Like lots of people, you know, you have Sturdivant who copied Warhols and maybe made them better. And other people like Mike Bidlow who, you know, recreated Warhols and stamped them fake on the back, et cetera. Like there's all these plays on the kind of market driver side of Warhol um, and the image and representation. But I think Fontana's so much more about the interaction with the canvas, the artist and the canvas, the signature of the artist, the artist's hand being present in such a physical 
manner. And also you can then start applying the post-World War II lens to it and all these other kind of ideas about trauma. And I think that keeps Fontana very, very, very relevant today. Um, it's kind of just amazing to see. And I, and I also think that, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite under discoveries was that the reason that so many great Fontanas initially came out of Scandinavia is because they were brought there by dealers to go with the furniture of the, the mid-modern furniture coming out of Scandinavia at the time. It all looks nice together and you can't over, you can't underestimate how nice a Fontana sits in a room. So that's also part of it. They are just chic. So, so the, the treasury bill of um, uh, art, like it's a safe thing to own, not a bad thing to have owned or to transition into if you sold some uh, uh, things and there's always a chance more people will come into it because again, it's, you can read a lot into it and it goes well with so much other stuff. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't know that you're ever going to see like massive deltas. I think we've found the market for the most part, but there'll probably be some bumps upward, you know, I, you know, a couple of points. Um, but that's the safety in that market. It's like, you can kind of go, you know, color slash size, et cetera, and kind of figure out what your price brackets are before you start talking about condition and all that, you know, there's cat res, there's the cat res that's questionable. It's kind of, it's got all the, all the things you need to, to make the market move along. Well, that is, I mean, uh, uh, the proper documentation and access to, to it. I think we talked previously about Boetti and, um, you know, sort of the rise recently of the, the small tapestry works, the five by fives, which also seems to actually fit into that story. Not again, doesn't take away from its own story about Boetti, but seems to also fit, fit into that sort of thing. Recognizable, uh, uh, enough volume, good, decent price point. And and I think with Boetti too, the buy-in of a little, a, a smaller, you know, five by five, ten by ten embroidery, you know, what do you get in the Fontana market for the same price? It's like a piece on a piece of paper with perforations in it. So, you know, for for the sake of wall power on the small scale, you know, Boetti offers a lot there. Uh before we leave this um, idea of sort of uh, names that are hiding in plain sight, uh, uh, l let me just sort of go through some of the ones that we identified uh, just going through that. And by, by the way, uh, I should have mentioned this er earlier, but the process we went through was to take all of the um, sales for 2022, uh, turn them into artist-specific sales, then... Uh, find the artists whose um, hammer prices were significantly above the aggregate low estimate. And that hammer price is including the works that didn't sell as an indication of sort of strong demand. And then, you know, we made sure that we got rid of sort of if you didn't have more than 10 lots. So there's some significant artists who have, you know, works that were bid on but not enough volume of works, even if it's uh, on paper and you know uh, day, smaller day sale works. Just again, not so much to to make price an issue, but more to make sure that we're not just working off of like w one exceptional lot that uh, drove demand. And you know, it was it was striking to me the the familiar names that came up. I mean, Mirandi. It's not like uh, Giorgio Mirandi still lives have not been a, a market staple for some time, though maybe it cooled a little. Bit. Bit, and maybe there's a little sort of inflation check going on 
uh, there. Jenny Holzer, Diego Rivera. We mentioned Fontana. James Ensor, which was sort of interesting. Renee Magritte is part of a, a story of surrealism we'll get to in a minute. You mentioned Eve Klein a bit before. There were the Andrew Wyeths in the um, Paul Allen sale. Had a huge impact on his hammer ratio overall. Raymond Pettibon, <laughs> of all people, the Lalans, both of them. Uh, um, Mary Cassatt, you mentioned Stanley Whitley, and I think you mentioned Peter Halley uh, before. And there's some shows coming up uh, uh, from some influential galleries of Peter Halley. So he is he's the artist that has been sort of coming for a couple of years now, now but maybe he's finally re-arrived. You felt like it was going to happen post kind of the Ford experience, right? Like post post everyone getting onto LEDs and spots, like Peter Halley was just sort of sitting there like, I'm I'm here, I'm waiting. You know, it's like the market's there, it's all set up, it's great. Um, you know, we just got to get people into neon, I guess. Um, but, the, you know, they're great pieces and they, they're strong. And, you know, we traded a few last year and it seems like there's there's a healthy, readily available market and it's bifurcated between 80s pieces and more recent pieces. And if you want a cell or a multi-cell or, you know, something that you can arrange yourself on the wall, there's, there's kind of something there for everybody. An interesting name that I'm just going to pluck right out of the middle of that was, was Raymond Pettibon. Um, I was thinking about this coming into our conversation. It's this, you know, the surfers have been the kind of gold standard of Pettibon. That's what everybody wants. And they, they have their market by scale, right? The big ones command close to a million bucks, maybe a little more. They're about five to $600,000 in the primary. You know, there's that one at Phillips that sold just over, just like above the low, I think in the November day sale, um, that was priced pretty high. They basically priced at retail and sold for like one bid, basically a retail bid on that picture. Great piece, but you know, for the scale, that was a like 400 to 600 or 350 or whatever it was, was a huge estimate. Um, and, but I think what's funny in like thinking about some of the other articles about like herd mentality that we've seen come out at the beginning of the year, like what happens in the petty bond market now that the market has dictated that surfers are the the thing that you really, really want, are people going to switch to trains, vavooms, baseball players, you know? I think it's either the Sandra collection or the Philippe Segalo sale of the four baseball players that still remains the record. Like we haven't seen something outside of a surfer really go the distance. You know, will it be of a boom? Will it, you know, what what will slot in underneath it? I mean, when I first got into Petty Bonds, when I was still running day sales at Phillips, no, I really wanted to see the trains come up in the baseball players, but I don't, I just don't feel like that's happened yet um, in all my dealings with Petty Bond. So that, that I'm kind of curious to see if people will break out into other parts of his um, output. Well, that I mean, that uh, brings up a really interesting part of how these markets work. I mean, one, we've seen a lot of things getting priced to retail, as you've mentioned, you know, with, with a few specific ex exceptions of works that have uh, artificially low estimates that are well below what everyone knows is private market, either retail or, you know, uh, primary retail. For the most part, the market's gotten very well priced over the last uh, 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 two or three years. And so it's very hard to exceed. But once you have, and everyone knows what a surfer is, and unless someone's willing to really break out from that, you know, 
what does it take? Does it take a great show? Does it take an influential collector sort of, you know, uh, either selling their um, trains and um, baseball play- players or, or, or a museum? You know, what, I guess, you know, that's a rhetorical question. It's like it could be any of the, those things, but you're often sort of stuck there waiting for it to happen. Right. You know, and then in terms of placement, you know, I think that's going to be the story of Riapel with that big one in Hong Kong, right? That's going to be the, the does, does Soulage come to America from France and does Riapel go from France off to off to Hong Kong and, you know, follow in the lines of Zhao Wuqi and, you know, Metsu and some of these other names that have been established out there. You know, that painting that Christie's got is gorgeous. It, it'll just remains to be seen if that market will will present itself, I think, the way that they think it will. Um, you know, looking across the line, there's the story of the Belgians, right? Rene Magritte and James Ensor. Um, and I think those two lean into the kind of growing story of, of surrealism in, in kind of all its forms from the surrealist movement up into artists that are painting today. I mean, the MoMA show of Ensor still remains one of my like all-time favorite museum exhibitions. Um, so I love to see and, and sort of coming into the fold and more and more people getting into it. Um, well, so cause let me stop you there for a second, because uh, I, I want I want to add to that. Just just this is just from our data. I grabbed a bunch of artists that I would say are kind of contemporary surrealists or surrealist inspired, and and you should feel free to correct me. But uh, Louise Bonnet, who's been doing very well. Uh, uh, the, well, first of all, there's the the sort of middle ground people who are not Magritte and Max Ernst and um, uh, uh, Man Ray, all of whom actually are on this sort of hot, hot list. But then there's Victor Bronner in Romania and Leonor Fini uh, from Argentina and France. And then in present day, we've got, uh, I mentioned by Eileen Agar, uh, Emily Mae Smith, Ali Epp, Eva Juskowitz, and uh, there was one other, but I can't seem to to, to find. You know, Ali, Ali Epp seems to have his kind of homegrown base of fans, um, primarily coming out of like Europe, I mean, he's UK-based, and, and then out in Asia. I think Emily Mae Smith is going to be probably the standout winner of that younger generation. You know, there, there was a moment where that felt like it was at the point of disappearing from evening sales and then it can the market kind of doubled down on itself um and i know that those in control of her work on the primary make it you know not so easy to get them and you know there's there's a it's not like you have to buy one and donate one but there's definitely a, a more stringent you know path to path to acquisition interview process and um and vetting you know both for paintings and works on paper so i, th- I think there's a pretty tight control as to what's going on um, on the primary, which you know sort of secures the secondary. As we've probably hit a moment where a lot of what could move has moved. The price points have been established. To buy in on secondary, you got to really love the work because you know there might not be so much of a delta. Um, there might be you know extenuating circumstances under which you have to hold the piece for multiple years contractually. Um, so you know I think there there's a market that's going to hold itself, and you know I think there's a there's a museum show coming up in Asia if it's not open already. Um, so I, I think that broad appeal out of those names really sticks there. Louise Bonnet, again, I think has has a strong following, you know, across the, across the globe. Um, I don't know that it's totally defined itself, you know, beyond the kind of grotesque, abstracted figure. The way, you know, and I think the draftsmanship of Emily May Smith is a little stronger, personally. But that's just my opinion. We mentioned something about market dynamics that uh, I think it's worth mentioning in relation to a non-surrealist ar- artist. 
We talked about, again on these podcasts, Salman Tour, just when we thought that kind of thing was winding down to take a rest, there was this, you know, fantastic sale of kind of the uh, uh, image. And he'd had a couple of great museum shows, you know, specifically this one in uh, Baltimore, which had a lot of work in, in it, and it all looked fantastic. And it was all of this sort of later um, uh, uh, period. Uh, I just wanted to mention that because he deserves to be mentioned in any sort of hot list uh, um, conversation. But there's there's every reason to believe that there might be a, a yet another run at tour uh, come you know the next few months as people are doing you know the gatherings taking place right now. There there as we joked with Kelsey and Lucius, there are disappointed underbidders. So undoubtedly, you know, uh, doors are being knocked on, emails are sent, and texts. And on the on the other side of that door, someone's thinking maybe now's my time. You know, I was a little worried, or I think we're at you know we've come to market fruition and it's, it's time, it's time to let it rip. So, you know, we'll, we'll see when they open their, you know, there are no print catalogs anymore, but the proverbial catalog <laughs> lands on the doorstep and then we'll. But, but that applies to like, we talked about Stanley Whitney, who's sort of by all rights and, you know, the, that kind of had its a nice arc. It would rest for, you know, six to 18 months and sort of have another leg up uh, hopefully. But now the, the pauses are sort of shorter. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the pauses are shorter, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, moving, moving, moving gallery, you know, switching team kind of thing hasn't changed. You know, I, I wonder if a lot of the run on Stanley Whitney wasn't in advance of that Kogosian announcement. Um, you know, I think we'd be remiss to say, put that alongside, you know, a young artist like Jade Fajr Timmy, who also made a Gagosian announcement and has yet to have an American show, a New York show. So what happens at that point when she does have a New York show will, because we've seen that market kind of go up, plateau, but, dip a little, go again. But they placed her. They play Gagosian and, and they did the PR on it. They made sure everyone knew that the centerpiece of the Art Basel booth were was that. I can't remember how many works there. And, there and it was the, it was Freeze London, the solo presentation. But again, it was, it was another London show kind of, Saying we're here, we're taking over the Pippi Holdsworth spot. You know what happens? What happens when she lands on New York shores? Because she's had a show in Asia with Takahishi. So it's you know now the the big question is the the U.S. New York market. It's not like New Yorkers don't know who she are. She is. I know of a lot of Jade sitting in New York apartments. But that kind of market arrival into the U.S. I think physically. So, well, it's that uh, it's the validation, and the, also then you know at the opening everyone gets to see each other that there, and many of the people who own them will be. I mean, it's it's there. There is a certain thing that gets done in public that there are not a lot of spaces to to do it, and not that many people with the convening power. You know, a, a, an art fair has it, a Gagosian ha, ha, has it, an auction ha, has it, but you know, those are not actually, they're not a lot of players who can do all of that. And they're not as easily orchestrated as they look after they come off uh, uh, so so well. well. While we're talking about things that look like they they, they sort of had run their course, we were talking about naive painters um, a little bit earlier. I know you're a big Andre Butzer fan. We've certainly spent a lot of time talking about Kerwick and Robert Nava and um, Rafa Macaron. I, I noticed in these numbers that Catherine Bernhardt and uh, uh, Yako Rokaku, who also sort of fits into the quirky Asian ca category. And then uh, two artists I wasn't terribly familiar with, with, but I had to sort of look up having seen the numbers, David Butler, but especially Albert Willem, um, were, were selling quite well 
you know, lower cost uh, uh, price points, but uh, a lot of de- demand there. Albert Willem is one is a name that came to my attention via live art, mostly out of you know the Asian client base, and then I started to see it appearing at auction, and it was already quite expensive. And the stuff we could dig up already seemed to have a market. So this seems to be a kind of small market export out of Northern Europe that landed in Asia, had a big following, following on the trends of Rococo. Blitzer, Kerwick, Nava, all these names that had defined this moment out east. Um, I think, you know, that then it kind of came onto the global, the global specter. How that that name in amongst all the other names that we've just listed play into 2023. You know, I think there'll be some relevance there. I think they'll still command prices. We're certainly seeing the first two weeks of trading, people asking about Kerwick and Nava ongoing conversations about blitzer new blitzers kind of making themselves apparent and available to us so i you know i think there is there there is a standalone market for some of these things i think some of these names um maybe were more market darling dealer driven and those up we're probably going to start to like fade to the back would be my guess um because they always just all the numbers that we talked about in the like previous podcasts felt like they were really pushed and then there wasn't enough gas in the tank for the next one so you had these polar, you know, polar seems to be the 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 buzz, the Pee Wee Herman buzzword of this episode. We had these polars, you know, everyone get a wacky. Yep. <laughs> the, the, you know, that that seemed to keep happening in some of those markets. And I think where that happens, you can start to see that it's not a true market and that the, those things will probably, you know, have their fans, but they won't command the prices that they used to. So there's room, you know, I think what we're saying is as we see, like within the women artists, not that it's like there is going to be lots of women artists that people are going to be interested in finding, whether they're abstract, figurative, you know, historical, whatever. But there is room within a lot of these spaces, it looks like for, um, uh, you know, both uh, uh, some sort of thematic trend like the naive artist to to sort of take its place as well as sort of fitting into other artists who um who may have had their day in fact uh uh the the two last things we should talk about before we go the hardest one to talk about is just this this large array of asian uh uh, uh painters we've touched on a few of uh of them uh i'm not sure we can they, they almost seem like talk about micro markets they are you know they're coming some of them out of small auction houses uh but and very much in t- intensity there, there but there are lots of different asian artists many of them japanese i thought was interesting not nearly as many korean artists as i would have uh, thought at least on these numbers uh, right I, I, I mean korea the korean market seems to be defined by don sikwa for the most part in terms of korean painters right the don sikwa modern answer to the zero movement essentially um which is fontana so circling back to the beginning um you know, I, those are the names. And then Kim Wong Ki, kind of the, the modern master of, of all of that, yeah. the kind of end sword to the surrealist, right? Like that's the kickoff point. Um, and for those who have ventured out to Seoul, you, you feel it on the ground when you go to the galleries. It's it's don't take what dominant, let's say, save a couple of contemporary galleries that are non-Western. Right now, the landscape changed with all the Western galleries that have moved in. But historically, I think that's that's the period of modern contemporary that holds the most gravity out there. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, into that whole mix, I want to add Christine I. Cho, who um, 
you know, it's been a mainstay of uh, Hong Kong sales for many years. She's an Indonesian abstract uh, a painter. She's represented by White Cube. She's certainly not unknown, and I suspect a big part of her market is, you know, in in, in the West. But she's also going to have a show at Mnuchin uh, the, this spring, and her auction numbers keep sort of uh, uh, rising on already significant ba- basis, and sounds like there's plenty of room to, to run. And in sort of that Cecily Brown kind of territory. There's a, uh, you know, she is not yet a sort of one to five million dollar uh, ar- artist, and it certainly seems like there's space uh, uh, for that. There's a lot. I mean, I think that's true, and I think there's a lot of even younger artists who are coming up in the in the heels of that. You know, there's a few coming out of England. Christy Chan is one that I think is is quite impressive. Um, she's had a couple of auction results, nothing you know massive yet, but there, there's a lot of potential in this kind of move to abstract it has a good it has a kind of bowl and polka feel to it i mean the other artists you mentioned you know they, they fit in the vernacular of other things we've discussed that's the brown that would key like they're they're you can pin them against their those who have come before and you can start to kind of feel what their value might look like um you know one of my favorite artists to break out in new york liza lacroix feels a lot like olin and kirkaby and you know i sort of peg her closer to olin in terms of like market run rate and um i'm very excited to you know see where her career goes and keep following it along i think you know her galleries you know are, are very good and, and forthright with her and um so I, I think that's all part of this this move towards female abstraction and female abstraction right and i think in the in the spring, we're also going to have Richter and Olin on the male side of things, sort of older white male side of things, um, showing in New York. So we're going to I think there's going to be a big German moment in, in the city again, too, which is, you know, the German arts, one of my favorite geographical points. So I'm, I'm quite excited about that. So that is very kind of 80s focused Richter and er- er- Erlen and, and even German expressionism and all, all, all that, which is my way of making a transition to the there's a group of names in that kind of revival category that are kind of 80s artists. Um, you know, or came uh, of age uh, uh, or fame in that uh, uh, period. And I just wanted to close sort of getting your opinion uh, of that. I mean, I, I just to give you Ross Blechner, Donald Batchelor, who just uh, died, um, Carol Dunham, uh, Clementi, uh, Sandra Chia, uh, I think I'm missing one or two, two others. And we've previously talked about, about the Schnabel and Sally and, uh, you know, the interest in the, those artists. Is that, is that just like nostalgia or is there something that's going to connect through all that? I, you know, I think, I think when you start, you know, you see some of you know, the trend we've seen over the last couple of years of young MFA artists breaking out, you know, of all stripes breaking out and making huge prices, all of a sudden it feels like some of these juggernauts of decades past feel really undervalued, if not, dare I say, cheap. Um, the and, and I think you're seeing some people who are, you know, sort of arbitrage market minded kind of moving in those directions, moving backwards. And, and not just because there are great things kind of like when somebody goes from collecting young art to buying a Picasso and Musketeer. It's like there's value in these objects. They feel vastly underpriced against what in the secondary market against what the gallery asks for new work. They're historically relevant by the date in which they were made. You know, it's this kind of like, this is this is real art. This was the zeitgeist of its time. And, you know, maybe maybe there is time to look back at it. You know, I, it's interesting though. I thought, you know, the, the Amon sale probably did more for Francesco Clemente than 
you know, two gallery shows globally of new work, right? Like that, that kind of put it back in front of everybody because it was a big grouping of a lot of it. You know, and, and Amon also was Blechner. It was Baszler. Baszler just passed away, sadly. Um, I, you know, my guess is Baszler keeps its fans, but its fan base is probably a bit on the older side. And, you know, I don't know if it gets, you know, off the walls of our Side restaurants and back into people's homes with... <laughs> you know, strong, with strong velocity. That that restaurant looks great. I don't know. It's a good, it's a good place to have a meal just for the bachelors. <laughs> totally. Um, you know, funnily, my, a friend of mine told me about a show they did with Carol Dunham, who's on, on the list, um, at their hotel in upstate New York. And I just thought, and it was all trees. I was like, why didn't you buy every single one of them at the time? You know, the, my, one of my most favorite paintings I saw was at, at um, Basel, Paris. The, uh, there was a Carol Dunham that Gladstone had on an orange field. And it was so such a knockout painting. Like, I just randomly think about it now and again. Um, you know, and I, I think Tip Dunham's one that's going to it's going to find its feet, right? Is it the trees? Is it the planets? Is it the 90s? The wrestlers and the cavewomen, like, yeah, they're going to get in there somewhere. But like, I, I have a feeling it's going to be a more PG Dunham that kicks it off. And then we go from there. Um, and maybe it's a maybe it's an add on conversation as we see the, you know, the the artists of Metro Pictures disbursement kind of fall into their new galleries. And, you know, Kruger, now that artists to Chicago and the, you know, the MoMA installation just came down. Um, you know, people also have the chance to see the room in, in the Hershorn. So that's three major U.S. cities where Kruger's front and center. And we just saw the record, beat the record within a couple months of each other um, for great 80s work. You know, I think even on the private market in the 80s, you know, edition one of one AP com commands a million bucks, you know. Even the driest of them are up there at that price now. And that's a, you know, that's a couple hundred point move from where we were before. So, um, you know, will Sherman kind of get back in there with centerfolds and film stills? Maybe there's just, you know, I think with Kruger, we just don't know how many there actually are because there's not like a great book on all of them. Um, you know, Sherman, there feels like there's a lot because there's, there are editions of 10 and, you know, all, and then there's different sizes. And so they just feel like there's like a plethora and, and, and photography still remains historically low. But I think that, you know, 80s to 90s pictures generation in the broader field as well, downtown New York probably has its moment now to really come back into the fold. You know, a couple of seasons ago, I thought it was interesting when Christie started putting Matthew Barney in the evening sales. I was like, okay, well, here's the moment to define a market, right? Like you can you can start to revive these names and get them in context. Um, you know, Elizabeth Payton, I think, is the, a great example of where that happens. Like all of a sudden, great Elizabeth Payton starts surfacing and the market goes red hot, right? So um, I think, you know, good examples that, will that, be out the bidders. That, the Payton sort of all seemed to start a couple of years ago with the David Bowie um, image, but it was interesting. It, and it didn't happen all, all at once, but it happened in a nice measured way to the point where, do you, are you expecting to see more uh, uh, Payton at auction? I, I think so. And I think part of that is that, the you know, the, the gatekeepers of the auction houses like Payton. So like good ones get placed and they get placed well. So, you know, I thought the, the Nick, I think it was Nick sleeping at, at Sotheby's was a beautiful painting, you know, if you like figuration or not. Um, and then in the world of German, speaking of auctions, obviously there was the, the monumental 86 Richter announcement just now. So, you know, I think, I think Richter with the move, this Werner is going to be on kind of everybody's lips. And it will be interesting to see when we, when we circle back in a couple of months, you know, how the bidding, the bidding ratio goes on that one. 
Well, we'll and we'll see how how firm the move is. I guess you know. Uh, I guess it's a trial period uh, uh, in that case. I, I, it is always interesting. Like you know, the um, Christie's brought back uh, the one of the Eric Clapton paintings, uh, but it's sold to the um, guarantor. And so you know, I, it sounds like there's lots of talk out there. They wouldn't be bringing something to auction if they didn't have uh, uh, interest. But uh, then the interest really has to solidify and 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 move that market. Top top Richter, top Doig. There's a lot of similarities for very dis- different types of styles of painting, right? It seems like the air the air is rare at the top. So, well, and and uh, maybe we can close on this. We are all expecting that twenty five million dollar paintings are not where the market is. Uh, I mean, there will be $25 million paintings, don't get me wrong, but that the the market focus and energy is going to be less in that uh, sector unless it comes from a big collection. You know, uh, uh, again, we, you know, predicting the future is, is a foolish uh, thing, but the auction houses are signaling that they're focused on getting these collections that are coming to term that have A-plus work and A-plus provenance, and those will be laden with these very expensive works. And then the rest of the market, which will be more of what we're talking about here, a lot of these various uh, artists. I think two points on that to, to wrap it up. One, in terms of Cecily Brown, who we touched on at the beginning, you know, I, one of the takeaways for me was that the aggregate bidding over the low wasn't that high in the end in 2022, despite kind of every person you talk to is looking for a Cecily Brown, you know, for themselves or for somebody else. You know, I my guess is that we're not going to see much past that 6.5 benchmark. We've got two sales that 6.5 that seem to say that that's the top of the market for right now, at least publicly. Um, you know, and those are and those refer good paintings with great provenance. So those aren't like rando six point five numbers. Yeah, no, no, no. And uh, you know, my my thought would be that the Met show pushes those kind of domestic scale paintings to a new level, right? Somebody goes in who's got buying power to a million, and all of a sudden, a ten by twelve Cecily Brown is going to run you, you know, with the juice close to a million bucks. I think that's kind of what I think that's the side of that market that's going to move. It's not going to be the 60, 70 inch paintings. I think it's those smaller pictures. You're, you're describing exactly what happened in the Richter market. The, the Richters were, were 10 feet tall and, and made $30 million, but that then made the five foot by five foot ones, you know, uh, increasingly more valuable, nine, 10, $15 million. So it would stand to reason, same sort of thing with that kind of headroom and confirmation. There's a lot of room underneath for people, especially if they're seeing more uh, work to be much more confident about paying more for smaller work. Totally. And then the, the the final takeaway on that, the collections come to term, you know, some of the things we talked about, Laura, in the last episode, collections that might be coming ahead of term for different reasons, are, I think are going to help promote these markets like Patrick Heron outside of the US, outside of the UK, or, you know, we'll see, you know, the Paul Allen sale did more for the Milton Avery market in two pictures than I think any, any number of American art sales could do in the last 10 years. So... You know, and now and you've got sort of plucky dealers starting to look at March Avery as well and the kind of broader Avery family. But it's gonna, you know, Remington is another name that was on our list. Like these names are gonna come back into the fold because these are the names that are in these very important single owners collections that are coming to auction, right? Instead of being dispersed quietly and privately. And that's gonna put those names back into the art collecting households of the world, right? I think that's 
that's how a lot of those names pull relevance once again. That is the perfect place to stop. I think that is that is wisdom and something to look forward to uh, in the months ahead. And, and as a programming note, you know the the sales are being announced for um, last couple of days of February, uh, first few days of March in both London and New York. So that's going to be the first uh, moment we really get um, you know public data. Uh, we, we may have some better private market intel from you guys before then, but really public stuff that we can uh, talk about will come then. So I think we're all kind of, we and the rest of the market are looking forward to it to see where the market stands now. Exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Well, thanks, George. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for joining us at the Intelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.